Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. How is it possible that the bones of a champion racehorse were not too long ago consigned to the dusty attic of the Smithsonian? A horse whose stellar career and long pedigree were little known outside some racing circles. These real-life details intrigued best-selling author Geraldine Brooks, leading her to craft a fictional tale based on the documented history of that top racing horse named Lexington. Brooks's simply titled novel, Horse, is a tale of the twinned histories of both Lexington and the people who admired her. It is a thrilling narrative stretching across centuries and set against a backdrop of racial turbulence, art history, and scientific inquiry. Horse is our July selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Geraldine Brooks is the author of six novels, including her latest horse. The best-selling author won the 2006 Pulitzer Prize in fiction for her book, March. Brooks, who is Australian-born, is also a former journalist and the author of three nonfiction books, including her memoir, Foreign Correspondence, A Pen Pal's Journey from Down Under to All Over. And author Geraldine Brooks joins me now from Martha's Vineyard. Welcome back to Under the Radar, Geraldine. It is so good to be back with you, Callie. It is. I'm delighted to have you with me and delighted to talk to you about this book, which I loved. <laughs> so I just wanted to start that way. Um, well, that makes me so happy. <laughs> my readers and, and listeners know that um, I don't do anything I don't love, and I just, just love this. So we're going to dive right into this story. So first, who was Lexington the horse, and, and why was the horse considered such an amazing animal? He was the fastest horse uh, of his generation and any generation before him. He was incredibly powerful and had massive endurance because in the 19th century, races were so much longer than they are today. They were typically four miles and they were heat races. So horses had to be able to run for four miles three times in the one day. And if you think about the Kentucky Derby, it's about a mile and a quarter and we think of that as a long race so think of that four times over so you understand what powerful horses these were and then he went on to sire more champions than any other horse ever had trace that siring to today for us so people understand you know just how big a deal this horse is well you know so for 16 years this horse's progeny won more races than any other horse's progeny. But those six, those 16 years also included the Civil War. So his, his uh, gene pool would have been even more spectacularly successful if so many of his sons and daughters hadn't gone off to be cavalry mounts, like um, General Grant's horse was one of his sons. But the horse that won the very first Kentucky Derby was Aristides, who was one of his sons. 
the race Preakness is named for one of his sons, Preakness, and so were four other winners of the Preakness. So he he just he just um, was the the most incredible sire of champions we've ever seen. So as I said earlier, he's a real champion racehorse, stellar career, long admired, but very few people seem to know about him and his story. I certainly had never heard of him, though I'd heard of Preakness and some of the other names that you mentioned. How did you learn about Lexington? Quite by chance. I happened to be at lunch at the Plymouth Pawtuxet Museum, and across the table uh, I caught snatches of a conversation that an official from the Smithsonian was having with his lunchmates about how he just delivered the skeleton of this famous racehorse to the International Museum of the Horse in Kentucky. And as he was telling about the horse's blistering speed and how they had created the mass-produced stopwatch because people were so obsessed with his uh, career and how presidents and General Custer and all kinds of people made pilgrimages to see this horse. He got up to what happened to the horse in the Civil War, which is quite a dramatic story. And I was just like, I need to hear more. I need to know about this horse. This sounds like it could be a book for me. So did you immediately think, whoa, this is a story I must write? Well, I was pretty obsessed with horses in that moment. I had come to horse riding remarkably late in my life, having never occurred to me to get on a horse till I was 53. (laughs) I don't recommend that. I think you should start when you can still bounce. But I was just loving it. And I had acquired a horse. And all I wanted to think about was my horse. And so this was having kind of a deleterious effect on my writing life and therefore the balance sheet of the household finances. So it was really lucky that I came across this story where I could unite my professional life with, um, with my interest at the time. So um, for all of my listeners up to this point, you're thinking, all right, well, it's about this horse. That's kind of interesting. It is and it isn't. Um, you, you, of course, take the real life story of this horse and then you embellish uh, in a fictional sense. But if anybody knows your work, and I hope that they do, they know that you are Good grief. What a researcher. So you really dive deep into what really happened. And all of those facts are um, mixed in with the fictional characters that you give the opportunity to carry through some of that history as you have imagined it. So first, tell us about, you know, what the whole story is about, because it's not just about Lexington. It's bigger than that. Well, the first thing I learned was the absolutely crucial role of highly skilled black horsemen in the success of thoroughbred racing in the antebellum and immediate uh, post-Civil War period. This industry, which I have to say, it's nothing like racing is now, which is you know something that only a few people care about. It was the pastime of 19th century American life because of course it was still an agrarian society and most people had a horse or they had were one generation away from having a horse and so the the, the fates of these uh, massively talented thoroughbreds were of interest across the country north and south but this industry that created so much wealth and so much passionate interest was built on the plundered labor of enslaved men and formerly enslaved men they were all men, of course, at that time working with the horses. And I, 
quickly understood that Lexington's early success rested uh, on the talents of a, a black trainer named Harry Lewis, who had been successful enough that he'd been able to save money and buy himself out of enslavement. And then, you know, later in the horse's life, I know that there's a portrait of the horse uh, with, uh, uh, the title is, with being led out by, quote, Black Jarrett, his groom. And if you know anything about horses, you understand pretty quickly that it's the grooms who have the most intimate relationship with them and the, the bond of love and trust. And so I became intrigued by who Black Jarrett was. And I could find that he existed, but I couldn't find any details of what it was like to be him. So he becomes the central character who's with the horse from the day that he's foaled until um, he, he passes away at a, at a good age. So as I said, we've got Jared and his time period, which starts before the Civil War, goes through that period. And then we have other characters that are in the 50s and then even more who are in the very recent contemporary times. In fact, I would say looking toward the end, there is a slight reference to the virus that we now know is uh, COVID. Uh, you didn't linger there, but that just gives people a sense of your expanded time period in telling this story. And it's really, it's kind of a, I take it anyway, as a mystery adventure because we're going along and you're revealing and revealing and revealing this piece and this piece and how your several narrators, because you do have several, play a part in the story of Lexington, Jarrett, and more. Why did you decide that there needed to be a, well, first, multiple narrators uh, of the story. And what do you think that gave you an ability to do that you might not have been able to do otherwise? So I knew from the beginning, one of the reasons this story intrigued me so much was that I was fascinated by the science around the horse's skeleton that had taken place at the Smithsonian. And as a former newspaper reporter, I do love to get up in other people's business, particularly if they have unusual jobs like cleaning bones for scientists. So I knew there would be a contemporary strand. Um, I was also interested in the art around the horse because this was a horse that was painted many, many times in the course of his long life. And one of the artists who painted him was a very fascinating character. Uh, so I wanted to go in all these different directions, but I, I realized pretty quickly that if I was going to write about the injustices and the racism of the antebellum period, I couldn't pretend that that story isn't still echoing and resonating every day in the present. So I had to bring that aspect of the story into the present as well. Well, I want you to read from the book. I'm so excited talking to you. I forgot I wanted people to hear <laughs> from the book. Um, so let's do uh, page 26. This is Theo, who is in contemporary times, our contemporary times. In 2019, the action takes place there. So Theo is, uh, he's a newcomer to Washington, D.C. He's a... Um, He's, he's the son of two diplomats, a Nigerian mom and a, a black American dad. And he's grown up all over the world and been educated in boarding schools in England when his parents were on post there. And he's an art historian and he's doing his PhD. 
And he has a side hustle writing art essays for the Smithsonian Magazine. And so I think that's all we need to know. Mm -hmm. Theo was keen to get more assignments if he could. For one thing, it was refreshing to write for a general audience instead of an academic one. For another, the Smithsonian Magazine paid decent rates and the money was a welcome supplement to his meager TA stipend. He stood and stretched as the pages emerged from the printer, layering into a satisfying stack. He glanced out the window. The pile of free stuff out on the curb was slowly dwindling. Passing browsers had disassembled the ziggurat, turning it into an untidy string of objects strewn along the sidewalk. Just then, a student in a GW t-shirt grabbed a gooseneck lamp. Propped on Theo's desk was his own find, a dingy canvas in a splintered frame. Theo regarded the painting. It made sense that the one piece of art in the pile of discards was a picture of a horse. Every Saturday, the old man had sprawled on his front steps with the races blaring from the radio, beer cans and cigarette butts piling up beside him. The painting was old, Theo believed, possibly 19th century. The lower half was a murky blur, the image totally obscured by a layer of grime, but the upper half looked highly accomplished. He tilted his desk lamp so that the light fell on the image. The head of a bright bay cult gazed out of the canvas, the expression in the eyes unusual and haunting. Whoever the painter was, he clearly knew a thing or two about horses. Theo looked under the kitchen sink for a grocery bag and wrapped the picture. He'd take it with him tomorrow. The editor at Smithsonian Magazine surely would know someone in conservation who might be willing to take a look. Maybe he could even turn it into an article. How you figure out if there's any value to a painting you've plucked out of the trash. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Geraldine Brooks, author of Horse. It's our July selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. So I find all of your characters very interesting, and again, all of them are based in some real history. The other part of this book that makes it so interesting, and you've already spoken about your relationship with horses, is that you really get into showing and telling us, those of us who have no relationship with a horse, like myself, <laughs> what that relationship is between the groom and the people who are closest to the horse. It's uh, really quite something. I mean, I got into it just wonderfully, and it was touching. You said intimate, but I, I would I would even call it touching. So I wanted to have you read a little bit of Jared interacting with Lexington, who was called Darley early on. Jared wanted to work Lexington a little before the young jockey arrived, so he saddled him up and led him out onto the race course. He had meant to go easy, a gentle canter, but Lexington liked the unfamiliar springy track, and Jarrett could feel the urge for speed as he lengthened his stride. That power and willingness reassured Jarrett. Perhaps he might be ready for race day after all. When the jockey, Meachin, arrived, Jarrett slid off and threw the boy up in his place. Lexington quivered at the unexpected lightness. Jarrett wanted to see what the boy could do on his own before offering instruction but he noticed that Meachin's hands shook as he bridged his reins. As the horse cantered out and accelerated, 
The boy sat low and stiff, deep in the saddle. He's afraid, Jarrett thought to himself. That ain't good. Where's that heart Tanbrook say you got? After a couple of lengths, Jarrett signaled Meacham to the rail. One thing you gotta know, this horse wants to win. All you gotta do is let him. Get on up off of his back, especially at the start. Find your own balance and let him do his work. Where you sit now, you get in his way. He likes to stretch way out low and flat, but he can't do that. If you're sitting down on him like a pile of bricks, he can't get his hind end to work. Get on up out of the saddle. Yes, that's it, just like that. Now go, show me. I uh, just thought every every scene with uh, Jared and the horse and their relationship was really eye-opening for me as a person that uh, was really unfamiliar with the, very much the closeness of, of uh, folks who work with horses. So you did that brilliantly for someone who knew nothing about it. <laughs> well, thank you. You know what I did? I just cheated. I just took all the thoughts and feelings that I have for my horse and gave them to Jared <laughs> and my horse and I, um, we volunteered in a program for kids who have autism. And it was such an ex incredible experience for me seeing how sensitive these animals are and how they can intuit what a person needs. They're so emotionally attuned because of course they're prey animals, mm. you know, so they live always having to be aware of their environment and looking for the thing that might come to eat them. And I think that that's what gives them this exquisite sensitivity to the emotions of people around them. Hmm. Well, that's my guest, Geraldine Brooks, uh, author of her latest novel, Horse. Now, much has been made of your writing the inner dialogue of both Jared, we just heard a little bit of that, and Theo. Both of these are black male characters, as we've said. Theo is from contemporary times, and Jared is the character of the groom who is enslaved. How did you approach trying to capture the authenticity of their perspective? Once I realized that it would be, I mean, there was another way to write this book. I didn't have to walk into this bandsaw <laughs> of, you know, controversy and the whole discourse around appro appropriation. I could have just centered the black owners, but that seemed to me like an unconscionable choice to make, not really a choice at all, because that would be erasing the contribution of the black horseman again. And I wasn't prepared to do that. And so once I knew I was going to be doing that and I knew I couldn't leave the story in the past because there's too many people still in this country as you know who want to say oh you know why are we still talking about slavery that's over and done with and we're post-racial well hello we're not and it was just you know that the noise of racism in this country was incredibly loud all through the years I was working on this book so I knew I had to go there so my next step was how and I just talked to a lot of black friends and just got their counsel and their advice and their generosity um, of sharing experiences particularly you know trying to capture the contemporary experience of being black in this country and the things that happen and the way class and education and no defense whatsoever and um, and you know plumbed my own soul for all the 
unintentional but hurtful microaggressions that I've committed in the course of my life. The best piece of advice I think I got was from Marlon James, who said, you know, when people talk about appropriation in a novel, often the appropriation is the least bad thing in the novel because it's just bad because the writer hasn't done the work. So if you're going to do this, do the work. And so that's what I tried to do. And if I haven't got it right, I am sure I will be hearing about it. Marlon James is a Jamaican-born writer of some note. I think he's won a few national, I don't know. Booker Prize winner. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) Kind of big prizes. (laughs) And and just, he he wrote one of my absolute favorite works of historical fiction, which is the Book of Night Women. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Just stunning book. Well, um, I'm going to let the readers enjoy the interior dialogue that you've crafted, I think, pretty well. Some of it was a little startling for me because I thought, wow, boy, you really got inside. So I'll be interested to see what other people think about it. But I I, I will commend you for, for doing the work in um, really presenting some, some thoughts uh, from your characters that I have not seen from a writer who is not of the experience. So we'll... we'll, we'll leave it at that. The process of writing this, you, of course, have done many, many books that are uh, based in history, so I guess you're familiar with that. Was this more or less difficult? This feels, I mean, there's so many details from all kinds of perspectives, from the perspective of the painter who those painters who just painted horses, I didn't even know about them, from a woman who was trying to make her way, a real person, uh, in the gallery space in New York, which is still an issue, I would warrant, as we've spoken about the the two black men in their various time periods, the young Australian woman, which I thought probably was easier for you to do since you <laughs> could <laughs> use some slang and uh, and uh, well yeah and she's 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 a little nerdy and she's a little awkward and yeah so she's she's very I feel very you know that's that one is close to the bone for me <laughs> what's that pro- what was the process like for you it was a lot it was on. hard mm-hmm. this was probably the hardest book yet Um, because it did go in so many unexpected directions, you know. And when you read this book, if something seems very unlikely and very strange, those are the true things. I know, because I looked them up and I went, what? This happened? Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had no idea that when I set out to write about a 19th century racehorse that the trail would lead somehow to Jackson Pollock, but it does, and that is true. And... um, and, you know, the, re- the rediscovery of the equine artist Thomas Scott did happen when somebody pulled one of his paintings out of a neighbor's giveaway pile. So, you know, I love what Mark Twain said. Um, Fiction is obliged to stick to possibilities. Truth isn't. So as a novelist, you do well if you stick as close as you can to the truth because it'll be stranger than anything you can invent. You dedicated the book to your late husband, Tony Horowitz, who was a prolific award-winning writer himself. Uh, probably most people know his Confederates in the Attic. Um, Geraldine, I mean, I got just to know him just a bit, and he was wonderful. So this had to be especially he, hard. He was wonderful. He died right in the middle of when I was right in the middle of writing this book. But he loved this project because he loves this time period. And we had, you know, he would bring me things from the archives because, you know, this horse was connected to some extraordinary historical figures. My favorite, uh, who I didn't know anything about until I set out on writing this book, was Cassius Clay, not Muhammad Ali. 
but the man that Muhammad Ali was initially named for, Cassius Marcellus Clay, was an aristocratic Kentuckian who became an ardent emancipationist. Um, Tony was researching him for a completely different book called Spying on the South, and we traveled to Kentucky together. And it was a rare occurrence where our working life overlapped in that way. And he was very encouraging when I was feeling that it was too big and I couldn't really do it. And he'd just tease me and say, oh, horse not galloping to the finish line today. (laughs) (laughs) And I miss him absolutely every single day. It's just been very hard, uh, very hard to pick up and and keep going. But um, a friend after he died so suddenly came to see me and she passed on a piece of advice that had come from Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who had said in the face of her loss, do your work. It might not be your best work, but it'll be good work and it will be what saves you. And that has turned out to be true because it's in immersing myself in work and thinking about how what a hard worker he was and how prolific and productive. And it kind of makes me feel closer to him when I'm working. Well, I don't think you have to worry about this being not good work. It's quite good work. I have one last (laughs) question for you. What do you want people to take away from the book? So I think everybody answers that question in a different way. And I wouldn't um, have the chutzpah to tell anyone what they should find, because I think you find different things every time you engage with a book. When I reread a book now, you know, as a senior person that I read when I was much younger, I get something completely different from it. But what I always hope is that maybe I get people to look at something in a way that they wouldn't otherwise have looked at it to get an empathetic perspective that they maybe wouldn't have had before. Well, I have plenty of hoods, but so I'll say, <laughs> I think they should go for the art history, um, the um, thoughts about and observations about our fraught racial history, um, just the thrill of understanding a champion animal, which I didn't really get before, and science, of course, it's all there. Uh, so and a wonderful story knitting it all together. So I thank you so much, Geraldine. Well, thank you, Callie. (laughs) It's wonderful talking to you as always. Geraldine Brooks is the author of Horse, her latest novel. It's our July selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club, and it's available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubeli and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our intern is Eli Chavez. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. 